0: on
1: this episode of the LP, Literature in Practice.
0: We know that if you want young folk to grow up and be anticipatory citizens, they should have a chance to talk about things that are controversial. And I think we as adults tend to underestimate the degree to which young people can effectively engage with topics that we think are too mature for them. When you think
1: of the word dignity, does its image and definition match what you see in your schools or school systems? If so, how, and if not, why not? These are important questions, ones that let us look at equity opportunities and obstacles and our own contributions to those opportunities and obstacles. Personally, while I know that there are many obstacles that need to be taken care of before I can say our school systems are universally dignified, I am grateful when I see and witness moments and movements, past and present, big and small, that show me what is possible at the larger scale and what I can do to contribute. Research activist Charles Payne has spent decades citing dignity and indicting indignity in education, highlighting both so the people and the profession can make righteous choices about the ways we teach our kids. Join me as Dr. Payne and I discuss one of the many books he's authored and co-edited, Dignity Affirming Education, cultivating the Somebodyness of students and educators. We take a look at dignity affirming programs and people of yesterday and today, and the wider impact they can make on how we educate tomorrow. This is the LP. The guest that we have today is one that holds a special place in my heart and mind. This individual is a professor of African-American studies at Rutgers University in Newark. And he is the director of the Joseph Cornwall Center for Metropolitan Research. He is the author of some of my favorite education-related books. But the premier one we're going to be focusing on today is the one he uh, co-authored and edited, which is Dignity Affirming Education, Cultivating the Somebodiness of Students and Educators. Without further ado, Professor Charles Payne. <laughs> How you doing, sir?
0: I'm fine. Then. Thank you very much for having me.
1: The first thing we like to ask our guests, you know, because this is a text-based podcast, we like to ask our guests, what was their favorite text as a kid, as an adolescent, and as an adult?
0: The kid part for me is a little complicated. Yeah. I, I had two aunts, one in Philly, one in Newark, who were teachers, And so I, I, I literally had more books than the school library because they, 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 they gave me <laughs> books every time I turned around. So if I had to pick one, it might be uh, A Thousand and One Nights, that, that kind of fantasy. As an adolescent, I know this sounds rather heavy, but I, I'm coming out of high school in, in the middle the 1960s, and so I was struggling to understand Fire Next Time by, by James Baldwin. Yeah. Giving us a, a kind of voice and, and, and depth to the idea of blackness, that was important to me. But at the same time, I was really struggling with souls of black folk one of my aunts happened to have a copy in their home so that was crucial and as a young adult uh, the lord of the rings <laughs> that's uh my favorite way to waste time when i should have been working on my dissertation was, 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 was to read those well so let's talk a bit about your book who is your book in this case
1: dignity affirming education who is it for
0: I want to say that I come into these conversations right now feeling very strongly that that African Americans no longer have a coherent sense of of what their educational goals are, right? Uh, We don't have enough conversation in our communities about what education ought to be, where it should take young people. So in some sense, I just want to start argument. (laughs) I I don't care whether people agree or disagree. I want people thinking about what should education feel like. That said. I am kind of reacting to the idea that how do you shape education for people who have been robbed of dignity? Every chance the system got to rob them of dignity. Trying to stimulate that kind of discussion in black communities is the first goal. And I think the second goal is to encourage educators to take some of the, forgive my language and the bias I'm showing here, the dry, sterile, desiccated terms that we use to describe social-emotional learning, which is itself a dry phrase, and to kind of put them into a language that people understand, which is dignity affirming. People get that, <laughs> they know what you mean, and they know why you're talking about it and in the communities I am most concerned with, we if you use some of the other kinds of ways that we talk about social-emotional health of children, They don't resonate the same way. So anyway, those are my audiences.
1: Yeah, and hearing you say particularly that last part, that definitely resonated with me well because um, in reading your literature, I feel exactly that. You make things that often aren't translated for common people accessible. And, you know, a book about systemic leadership and educational reform can sound really jargony and cryptic and coded and complicated, but you made it plain as day. Um, That's and I was, just a
0: great compliment. Uh, thank you very much.
1: No, no, no doubt. And it was definitely a clear and dignity affirming education. Can you do the audience a favor and describe what dignity affirming education is? And what would you say are the premier traits of a dignity affirming
0: curriculum? For me personally, it's education that is premised on the idea that if we give people time to reflect, they can come to much deeper understanding of their own capacity and of the situation in which they're working. That's one. Certainly, it's got to be an education based on high expectations for children, that they can do more than they have been led to believe that they can. It's education for the whole child. and not simply trying to get people to be able to pass tests. And I think one of the things I've always been most impressed by with freedom schools is their impact on parents. And so I, I, I think what that tells you is that a part of the affirmation of dignity is re- reflecting parents in our communities who often feel disrespected by schools, but also the culture and then the freedom schools that shows up and uh, shows up in all of that music and chants that you all do, right? Uh, uh, pretty directly connected to the African American experience. So, anyway, those would be cer- certainly some of the elements that I associate with, with dignity affirming education.
1: Yeah. No. It was interesting to hear you talk about reflection in relationship to having high expectations uh, academically. And this idea that it was a fully integrated experience, right? Oftentimes in education, we like to put things in different buckets like, oh, reflection is for social emotional or, you know, academic is only for, you know, academic and culturally responsive or multicultural education is something totally different. Like, but this idea that if you're approaching from a a dignity-affirming stance,
0: all of that is melded together and integrated into one experience. I hope I'm not either wrong or stereotypical in what I'm about to say, but among the older generation of teachers, it is my sense that there are a lot of them who think in terms of those boxes. My job is to deliver curriculum, period. Now, whatever else happens to the kids, somebody else's job, (laughs) my job is delivering curriculum. Among younger teachers, I think, there is a kind of willingness to push back against those kinds of boxes, those kinds of limitations. And therefore, I hope, a willingness to think more broadly about what young people need to develop.
1: That, that kind of actually ties me into another question I wanted to ask you, because when I was, you talked about freedom schools, um, and I know with freedom schools, and the uh, work that uh, Satima Clark did with uh, citizenship schools that you talk about in this book, uh, Dignity Affirming Education, they often had to deal with potential trade-offs of what people were skilled in, right? Like there were, in Satima Clark's case, there were like a professionally, quote-unquote professionally trained teachers that couldn't necessarily connect with the people, but then you had citizens and people that could connect with the people but weren't necessarily professionally trained teachers. And in Septima Clark's case she rolled with the people who you know weren't you know trained to be like you know classroom teachers but could connect with the people and then train them up with those particular skills how, how do we achieve that balance today of like having teachers that have all the knowledge you need to be a teacher all the best you know instructional skill sets um and tools and, and 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 deliveries but also still you know, connect with community folks and affirm them the way they need to be affirmed in the process.
0: I just want to say by way of uh, historical background that Septim was, was thinking specifically about teaching on one of the sea islands. She taught both on the mainland and on the islands, So she went back and forth. And that part of the problem that she is, is, is was grappling with at the time was a tendency for Blacks on the mainland to look down on Blacks from the islands, on the Gullah. Gullah was a was a, a put down in those days. I don't think it has that connotation anymore. But I just want to stress that a part of that the dynamic that she had to struggle against was internal class prejudice in inside the black community. We mainland Negroes we're better than those, those ignorant Negroes on the island. So I just want to underscore that that's a part of what of the history out of which that question comes. Right, and so. I oh, to give you one of my, my favorite quotes, and for me, the, uh, the one that defines this volume. Someone asked Septima why her methods of working with people were so much more successful than everybody else who was trying to do the same thing. And observer, Miles Horton, for those of you who know, know that name. Miles Horton said, it's because of, of the radical affirmation of human dignity in the way in she, which she works. And so a part of that, right, is teachers showing respect. And so how we can achieve that today, I think at one end of the expecting we have what I think is a real strong movement toward grow your own kinds of programs, develop people from neighborhoods to become professional teachers and come back to those neighborhoods. And I think they're establishing quite, quite a track record. There was a time on the west side of Chicago with some community activists had a program for a time at which they invited first-year teachers to spend their first week of the year living with a family in the community. That had wonderful impact in, in terms of creating bonds and of mutual respect. Yeah. And then, you know, more prosaically, right? it's certainly yeah. possible inside our, our schools of education to make it a point, and I think some do now, uh, to challenge the kinds of class prejudices that teachers are likely to acquire. Uh, We can challenge that while they're in school. And I think young people are very often receptive to those.
1: Thank you for uh, lifting up, grow your own programs. We talked a bit about that in a previous podcast series that uh, we did called the complexion of teaching and learning, which focused on like the development and contribution and oppression of educators of color over the years. Uh, And one of the things we talked about was like the importance of those they're often underseen and, you know, and often underfunded, but it's important that we lift them up when we can. I, I want to work backwards a little bit because we, and through context, our listeners will have figured out who Septima Clark is and was, but can you please give a full intro and breakdown of who Miss Clark was and uh, why she's somebody who somebody who's trying to be a teacher should study for how she decided to provide or coach for instruction?
0: Well, I mean, I I just think of her as one of the grand, one of the grand educators in the African-American tradition. So, grows up in a working class family near Charleston, I believe, becomes a school teacher, one of the first blacks to teach in the Charleston school system, but becomes an activist in the NAACP, fighting for equal pay for, for teachers, eventually gets her fired. (laughs) You just couldn't do those things in Charleston in those days. She created this program in which she first taught people literally how to read and write. People would be on buses in the morning going to the field trying to learn their ABCs. Out of Mrs. Clark's work came the citizenship schools, which spread out across the South, adopted by the Southern Christian Leadership Conference under Dr. King. And they just went across the South, not just teaching people how to register to vote, but teaching people how to be citizens, how to be leaders in, in, inside their community. At the ground level, at the grassroots level, many of the people who took local leadership roles in the civil rights movement at its most dangerous period came out of her citizenship schools, right? So that's a part of her, her heritage, but a part of it too, she is a, is, is a deeply progressive educator, profound respect with African-American cultural communal traditions, right? At the same time, exposed to some of the best thinking in this country about education. And so, um, it's it's a paraphrase. Stephanie Clark says someplace, we don't need to teach people what to believe. We need to teach people how to think. We need to teach them how to study and let them figure out what they want to believe. And Of course, that's very, very close to the progressive tradition. But, but very close to some of the activist traditions that will form in the 60s, partly because they were influenced by her.
1: What do you think would be best for teachers today? How would they best model the dignity-affirming kind of educational approach? How, how could a classroom teacher start working on doing
0: something like that? I, I would go back to how do you think about developing your students as leaders so that how do you think of the classroom as a kind of boot camp for leadership we know that if you want young folk to grow up and be active participatory citizens they should have a chance to talk about things that are controversial and i think we as adults tend to underestimate the degree to which young people can effectively engage with topics that we think are too mature for them exposure to controversy they should have exposure to people in their own communities who are doing things, to activists, to community leaders, to people who have voice and act on that voice, even if much of the power structure tends to ignore them or put them down, but simply exposing folk to models of activism and engagement had a long-term impact. And of course, with the SNCC Freedom Schools, there is this where children are encouraged to believe that I can make a difference in my family, in my school, in my town, in my country. And one week of the summer curriculum is devoted to each of those. Would you talk about day of action? Because I think that's another part of, of, of some of the days of action that, that you saw when you were doing this work. For sure. Um, day
1: of action typically happened like in one of the latter weeks or the last week of, of the Freedom School model and you take all the information that you gathered over the course of the week and understanding your own dignity and your own agency as a person, as a family member, and as a community member, and as a, a country person, and you demonstrate it in one solid day of action. Now, oftentimes from the National Freedom School uh, office, there's a particular uh, cause, whether it's uh, you know gun control, whether it's a, you know, a voting rights, right, like, there's a particular cause, there may be some framing on how to approach it, but, you know, that looks different in every single site, you address that particular uh, cause or that particular societal issue from the lens of your site, and you spend that day uh, doing that, and you, again, do it in a very affirming way where We're always doing our cheers and chants. We're tying back things that we learned in our literature, and we reflect. It was just—it was just a great time, and it didn't feel like begrudging political work. It felt like you know joyful rebellion, right? And and joyful advocacy and dignity affirmingness, right? (laughs) A a dignity affirmation. Pardon me.
0: So I mean, that's just a great example, right? So so that we often we don't think that twelve-year-olds are sophisticated enough to think about voting rights issues, but um, on the fact they are, and, and they can enjoy thinking about it. And to go back to your original question, getting them involved at, at that age does a great deal to ensure that they will continue to be involved when they're 22 or 32.
1: That's right. And and I think it's important to note, too, especially now that I'm reflecting, there wasn't one moment where we were like, you have to vote for this party or that party, this philosophy or that philosophy, right. like you said, um, in terms of how our, our foremothers and forefathers kind of uh, approach education is not what to think, but how to think about it, right? Um, and, and I think that's where, you know, the rigor often came from uh, with uh, Freedom School. And I think it's also where the rigor comes from uh, for another program you mentioned, which was the International Baccalaureate Program. You talk about that a lot in this book, Dignity Affirming Education. I also <laughs> was an IB school graduate. Yeah, yeah, yep, yep. In uh, Rochester, New York, I went through the IB school, uh, the IB program, and 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 got that diploma. Can you talk a bit about the ways the IB program models the delivery of grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful instruction?
0: Yeah, I'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing I want to say about IB is I, IB was literally created for the children of diplomats around the world to make sure that they wherever they were. They, they would have a high level world class education. Until, I'm gonna say maybe 15 years ago, everybody assumed this is a program for upper middle class kids. And that's where it was, wherever you felt it in the world. Over the last 15 years, it's been pretty conclusively demonstrated that kids who come from other kinds of backgrounds, I'm not gonna say every kid, that I think that would be false, but kids who don't come from that kind of enriched and privileged background can also profit from IB and in Chicago, from maybe two IB schools, 15 or 20 years ago to 56 now, most of them in low-income neighborhoods, not all successful, but the ones that are good are spectacularly good, right? And and, and the consistent experience, what we hear from kids who've gone through the IB schools, they're much more likely to go to college, much more likely to go to four-year colleges. The consistent word we hear from them is that after IB, college is easy, okay? Mm,
1: yeah, so that's, that was that's, my experience, yeah.
0: Right, right? And, and I, I, I wanna go back to that, right? Uh, why, why, why are kids saying that, right? I have a little bit of, of hesitation around the whole notion of grade level, because that means you're, 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 you're setting your standards against the American average. So what IB is important to me is that it tries to think in terms of what are international standards, right? How do we develop kids who are global citizens, global thinkers, and can compete, if you wanna put it in that but but who will be comfortable working to international standards and one of the things i think that means is they put a lot of emphasis on research on synthesizing ideas on higher order thinking and that i think for me what my experience with ib students has always been when they get to college those first term papers don't, don't 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 hit them the way they hit the other kids
1: facts that's so they, true
0: they've been doing <laughs> that for three i
1: was already immunized yeah
0: <laughs> that's exactly what i'm saying right and so that let, let's not i, I don't want to be tied to grade level, but, but but IB just ratchets up the standards that we expect children to live up to. And if we expect them to do it, most kids can't. Some kids will need some scaffolding. S- some kids will need a lot. Some kids will need a little. But when we give kids the right support, they can move to standards that are higher than the American norm. That's what, that's what, I, that's what I believe.
1: Yeah. And, you know, just uh, for, for clarity, because I know grade level can mean, a lot of different things when, when we talk a bit about grade level, you know, we refer to the idea of there being a rigorous bar. Like we know that American average is not the bar that it, it should be, but the average of what is performed versus what, you know, bars are according to like, you know, like solid sets of standards. There's is often a, a big gap. When I think of grade level in my case, I feel like that was IB like rigorous things that rigorous experiences, that students should be, you know, go through, but also go through in a supported way, right? Um, that way they can authentically engage in that rigorous or, 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 um, you know, grade level work. And one of the things that I read in your book, which was affirming, was there was like a tension. I graduated from the IB program like, what, 17 years ago? And there was a tension where like, while the public school I went to was actually one of the best public schools in the country, there still was like the IB program and everybody else, right? And I love how you talked about the equity that some people try to make sure is present, whereas like, no, everybody going through this at least through up to this point or everybody's just going through it, period. This is an IB school, not a school that offers an IB program because I often wonder like, you know, why couldn't everybody in my school get like a similar kind of education? And again, outside of that program, there was a lot of quality things going on but like I know, outside of my school too, like there can be a difference between like what the IB kids experience, what everybody else experience. So, you know, part of me would wonder why can't everybody have that really rich academic experience to be prepared for college and career and beyond um, the same way I was? Because you're right, when I got to college, I was like, oh, this is easy—not easy, but I was like, oh, I, I can I can do this nine-page paper real quick. <laughs> so, one of the things
0: that I like about Chicago, and I haven't. I haven't been there in a few years, so I don't know how well it's going. But most of the new IB schools have, I think this is true, what they call wall-to-wall IB. That is, it's not a program that you opt into. If you go into the school, you're in the the IB program. So that's one thing that I really like, speaking to your point. The other thing, though, that that I love, (laughs) right? Because part of the problem with IB is the kids get to high school and all of a sudden you say, okay, so now you're going to have to do twice as much work as you've ever done in your whole life. And you got to say that to 14 and 15-year-olds who are just not listening. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you know, IB now has a middle years program and it has a primary years program. And so one of the things that I hope we, were, some of us are going to begin advocating for in New Jersey, in our inner city neighborhoods. We want pathways that are ib-cultured to start when kids are five years old and carry them all the way through through twelfth grade. I don't know. I, I don't know if that exists any place. I mean, there are lots of places that have one level or the other, but I don't know if anybody has that ladder yet and have located it in an inner city neighborhood. But the, the, the effects of that of kids being accustomed to a higher level of expectations so that it becomes normal for them, boy, that could be powerful.
1: So I, I, I wanna do one brief activity with you. And this activity is called Just To Get A Rep. Uh, so you'll be given a noun or an adjective, right? And all you're gonna do is provide another noun or adjective to associate with it. Here they go. Education reform.
0: So education reform. Hustle.
1: Mm, okay. All right. TikTok.
0: Blank. Blank means I know nothing about TikTok, except yeah. I get these messages that I don't understand. Yeah. It,
1: that. It, to speak transparently, it's a learning area for me as well. and I'm, For me, the jury is still out around it being leveraged for good or bad in terms of societal progress and or education, um, I see people using it for education purposes, and it makes sense and it's quick and clean and clear. But I'm thinking about the overall assessment, so I'm 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 kind of blank right now. There's more there's more learning I'm doing about
0: it as well. Uh, Abbott Elementary, no, that's real. They really do capture the feel of of, of urban schools. Uh, some of the characters are. are yeah, I, I, I have known teachers like that and administrators like that. So, very good job.
1: Advanced placement courses.
0: I, I, obviously, I've, I struggle with with this, but, 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 but that's because I think they are somewhat overrated, but they're still good things to push kids into, partly because of, of the grade level issue that you identified earlier.
1: Last but not least, student loan forgiveness.
0: Absolutely. Yesterday, um, do it faster. Yeah, amen to that.
1: Uh, adjective first this time, uh, so respond with a noun. Brilliant.
0: Uh, I go back to, uh, let's say, septum o'clock. Effective. Uh, principles.
1: Ineffective.
0: Huh? Uh, leading with curriculum, and I know that's that's unclear, but what what I'm saying is I I become increasingly skeptical that you can reform schools if you start with teaching. Uh, and again there are exceptions to everything but it's so much more important to start with the overall culture and organization of the school and and then the teaching can fit. Put it another way most of the schools I think that too many of our kids are trapped in don't support good teaching even if you put it in there Mm. so organization first however however you want to say that gotcha. Uh, Hilarious Hilarious Ninth graders. <laughs> I do a lot of work. I'm working with teachers doing ninth graders. They're just crazy. So, yeah, I go with ninth graders.
1: Yeah, no, I, I can relate. Uh, passionate.
0: Uh, I don't know. Young teachers.
1: And last but not least, curious.
0: I hope uh, we, we underestimate how curious our kids are right? and, and how much serious that can be. So, the kids who, who, who act like they're not interested in school are still deeply, deeply curious.
1: Well, uh, Professor Payne, uh, it's been an honor getting ready to, uh, you know, getting the dialogue with you. One thing that we like to ask our guests before we part ways, how does your text, Dignity Affirming Education, help support folks who want to make instruction more grade level, and by grade level mean rigorous, engaging, affirming, and meaningful for students?
0: I hope what the text will do in a small way at least is undercut the ideologies that many teachers are exposed to, overwhelmed by, that cause them to expect too little of certain kinds of kids, especially kids who come from uh, Black, Latinx, or low-income white backgrounds. And and so the the more you think in terms of, of, of what's affirming for kids, I think the less likely you are to be trapped into the ideologies that say these kids can't do it. That's what, that sets at least my hope. This spin of the LP with
1: Charles Payne left me with a few things to reflect on. It's making me think about how a whole child education approach is a powerful concept. One that if destined to be a buzzword, let it be one where those who happen to do the buzzing work together to develop the sweet honey of freedom, pollinate equitable practices and sting oppression. All of this represents the idea of dignity A word that's root is defined as holding an honorable estate or office. What does our instruction say about the belief of the estate of our students? Do we say that it is an honorable one? If not, why not? We must work to avoid undignified or unhonorable approaches to instruction from the estate or office from which we deliver it from. And lastly, The conversation about the International Baccalaureate Program made me realize that one of the greatest struggles in American education is expanding, duplicating and improving programs that work. Finding and eliminating the roots of this challenge will permit the growth of grade level, engaging, affirming and meaningful instruction to take place regardless of student zip code or identity. With scholar activists like Charles Payne showing us models in the past and present, This opportunity continues to exist. If you'd like to get more info on this episode's author, the featured text, and how you can apply your newly acquired knowledge in your profession, we got you. Check us out on the LP website at unbounded.org forward slash LP. You can also check us out on social media at UnboundEDU. This is Brandon White. Thanks for listening to the LP. Literature in Practice, where we take a look at texts and practices that encourages student instruction to become more grade level, engaging, affirming, and meaningful. Peace in progress.